the passage from Psalm 102. I think it was verses 1 and 2. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let me cry. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. And I, I feel like that was a very appropriate um, reading for this morning. Uh, Lisa, Lisa Smithling and Dave Noss uh, have a friend at Sequoia, a teacher at Sequoia, um, I don't know which one of the schools, her name's Laura Putnam, who passed away, I think, this morning. And so there's a lot of uh, broken hearts this morning. So appropriate. And I feel like we should just pray right now for all of them, everybody affected. This is a time of great excitement, Lord, a great joy this season that we're in, but for so many there are pain and new pain today. And where where words fail, you are faithful. And so we pray that all of those who are um, in agony this morning, who have just had their lives changed, we pray that your healing be upon them, that your presence be made known to them, that people like Lisa and, and, and Dave can minister and share your love, to be love, where it seems like love has been stripped. Many of us know pain that surrounds the holidays. And so as as we sung, let us bless you with all of our hearts. You give and you take away, but blessed be the name of the Lord, and we praise you. We praise you because you are good. We praise you because death is not the end. We praise you that you brought salvation in Jesus Christ. And so in him we rely and we trust. We place all of our hopes in Jesus Christ to rescue us from the horror that is death. I don't know Lisa or what her state, her spiritual state is or was, um, but God, let there be mercy. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I didn't expect to start this message on a somber note, but here we are, life happens. <laughs> um, and life is messy. Well, last week, we finished up nine months in the book of Galatians, and this week we begin a little series for Christmas, a series of four messages starting today, next week. Christmas Eve, and then on the 29th, Um, and it's called The Coming King. That's this little series that we are in right now, The Coming King. You know, today, we're 10 days away from Christmas, and so right now in my house, there's a whole lot of excitement. I've got four daughters. Well, maybe not right now in my house, there's the fever. (laughs) So there maybe is a little less excitement than there was a couple days ago, but nonetheless, there's a lot of excitement. Uh, This whole Christmas season is filled with it. Everybody looking forward to giving and receiving of presents, anticipation of various 
uh, traditions that we have in our house and definitely anticipating my wife Meg's uh, Christmas breakfast, which is phenomenal. Uh, And what I find interesting is when I ask the girls, what are you looking forward to the most? Um, It wasn't what I expected. They're looking forward to, one of the things they're looking forward to the most is waiting. (laughs) They cannot wait to sit on top of the stairs and, and have that waiting, that excitement to come downstairs and then see it all, to see the presents finally under the tree, to see the, the, uh, the, the Christmas breakfast spread and the stockings filled. They, they can't wait to sit at the top of the stairs. Um, it's a time that brimming with excitement. So they're excited to be excited, to finally be moments away, to finally be ready for that that joy, that joy that they've anticipated, a joy that's birthed in the arrival of a long-awaited hope. And what a parallel. What a parallel we find to this Christian life that we live. You know, from the Garden of Eden to the Roman occupation of Judea, God bent the entire universe to be waiting, anticipating the coming of the King the arrival of the king. This expected king that was to come, he would alter human history forever. He would usher in a changing of the ages and he would begin uniting heaven and earth. He's not an ordinary king. He is the ultimate high priest. He is the eternal temple. He is waiting at the top of the stairs, anticipating the coming of the king. So today, I want to do two things. I want to survey the Old Testament a little bit for these shadows of the king, these prophetic words of the coming king, and then reveal, I want to show you how the word reveals that this king to come is the center of all worship. So we're going to survey the Old Testament for prophecies, and these Prophecies are like shadows. Each, each prophecy does not give you the full picture of the king. They come in pieces. They come like shadows. They give you an idea of what the king is to look like, but none of them clearly image it. Not in, entirely. But you can see it. You can see it as you read through the pages of the Old Testament. Everywhere you see it, it's all being bent in anticipation of the coming king. So before we go, continue... Let's pray about this. Oh, Father, I pray that you would guide us through your scripture. And in our hearts, an anticipation would rise. A realization that the king had come. And a hope that he comes again. And I pray that our souls would be satisfied by this king. In him we would find our joy, our hope that Christmas would have any kind of meaning because of him. Our lives would have meaning because of him. I pray that you would turn our hearts to worship, perhaps for the first time, perhaps for the the millionth time. Turn our hearts again in worship of this king. I pray it in his name, Jesus Christ. Amen. So this very first prophecy of that king, of the king who was to come, is found in the garden, in Eden, 
after Adam and Eve had succumbed to the temptations of the serpent and they ate from that forbidden tree, they took the fruit. After that happened, God speaks to the serpent, the devil, and he says this in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Right there is the gospel. Here you have a curse upon the serpent and you have a blessing for mankind. There will be a son born of a woman, an offspring that will receive a wound from the serpent. Or a bruise, but the offspring will bruise the head of the serpent. Or a bruise, that Hebrew term translated as bruise, can also be translated as crush. Maybe in some of your translations it says crush. Eve's future son will crush the head of the serpent. So at the same moment that the devil wounds the king, the son, he will meet his defeat. The devil will, the scourge of mankind, will meet his utter, ultimate, final destruction by the king that is to come. Let's fast forward a few hundred years after the garden, after the fall. God gets a little more specific about this king. Another shadow is seen. The king will have a kingdom. And God would establish that kingdom through a promise made to Abraham. That promise is found in Genesis 17, verses 4 through 8. I encourage you to turn to it in your Bibles right now. Genesis 17, verses 4 through 8. And God promises to Abraham, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God for an everlasting possession. Many nations would come from Abraham, or as God's earth shall be blessed. 12.3, in you all the, the families of the earth shall be blessed. Listen to that. In you, in this one man, all the families of earth will be blessed. All the families of the earth will be blessed. From Abraham would come kings. And God begins that kingdom that everlasting kingdom in the land of Canaan, which would later be called Israel. And one man, from this one man, from Abraham, from this one man, from that tiny strip of land in the Middle East, something everlasting will emerge, something that will bless every family on earth. An everlasting kingdom And an everlasting kingdom needs an everlasting king. 
He would descend from Eve. He would be a descendant of Abraham. He would come from Israel. And from Israel, the king would establish his kingdom as an everlasting blessing for all the families of the earth. These shadows are starting to show us a little more clearly what this king looks like. From Eve, from Abraham, from Israel, establishing a kingdom that would be an everlasting blessing to every family on earth. 430 years later, God gives the descendants of Abraham that land he promised. Last year, we studied through the book of Joshua, and you see how faithfully God delivered the promised land to the descendants of Abraham, to the Israelites. He gives them the land. 400 years after the conquest, a king arises who would reign in that land, in that kingdom, who would reign in Israel. Not the prophesied king, but a forerunner, a shadow of the king. This king is a shadow of the coming king, and his name was David. So David, a victorious king, a conquering king, he establishes and expands Israel's territory like never before. He turns the people to God in worship. Yeah, he doesn't do it perfectly. He's a flawed man. He has got some major issues. But God calls David a man after his own heart. One of David's great ambitions was to build a house for his God, a temple unto the Lord. And even after all of his flaws, people can come to worship him. But God says no to him. You will not build me a house. But he calls him a man after his own heart. But but even though God says no to David, he makes a promise to David. A promise regarding his kingdom, his kingship, and that house. 1 Chronicles 17, verses 10 through 14, we find that promise. God says to David, When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, which was King Saul, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever." So God was promising David that he would give one of David's descendants the kingdom. This kingdom, Israel, this promised land, this eternal kingdom, this everlasting kingdom, this kingdom that is to be an everlasting blessing to all the families of the earth, he's going to give it to one of, Abraham's, or to one of David's descendants. And this king, this same king, would build a house for the Lord, would build a temple. And so David's son, Solomon, would build the very first temple in Jerusalem. But you know, Solomon was not the fulfillment of this prophecy. He was just a shadow. Solomon's throne came to an end, and his kingdom was divided. Nearly every single one of David's descendants, with a few exceptions, nearly every one of them leads the people not to the temple to worship, but away from God, to idols. 
including Solomon. Which one of them would have been like a son to God and God a father to them? Which one? None of them. So, 376 years later, David's royal descendant, King Zedekiah, was taken captive by the Babylonians. Solomon's temple was burnt to ashes. David's throne failed. The kingdom was reduced to this troublesome province now, hardly everlasting. It would seem that God's promises failed. But that promise to Eve, to Abraham, to David did not fail. And God did not forget. There was a coming king, an altogether different kind of king, a king that would truly fear the Lord, that would lead the people to worship. He would lead the nations into the temple of God in everlasting worship. God would indeed be his father. This king would be both the son of David and the son of God. He would not rule with military might and political power. He would rule in righteousness. Isaiah chapter 11 verses 1 through 5. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was David's father. And the spirit of the Lord, stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. When the glory of David's throne appeared like a lifeless stump, God declares hope. A branch would arise, would come forth. When all human hope had failed, all human effort, all all human reliances have failed, God remembers his promise, and God will not let his promise fail. And so from a dead stump, he would raise the king the shoot, the branch, the son of Eve, the son of Abraham, the son of David, his own son. The Spirit of God would rest upon him, be alive within him. His words would judge the world, bring justice to the poor and to the meek, and punishment to the wicked by his words. And his greatest delight, this king's greatest delight, will be in his father. He will be clothed in righteousness. So nearly 600 years, nearly 600 years after Solomon's temple is destroyed, which is about 1,800 years after that promise to Abraham, in the land of Canaan, a very obscure descendant of David steps into the Jordan River to be baptized. And it was at that moment that the ages of the universe shifted. 
in Matthew 3, verses 16 and 17. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven that said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The Spirit of God was resting on this unknown person. God was a father to him, and he a son to the father. Was he, this man, the long-awaited hope? The king who had finally days later, Jesus begins from Nazareth. Forty days later, Jesus begins his public ministry, and he comes proclaiming this. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The king had come. The long-awaited kingdom of God had arrived. Jesus Christ, born to a woman, a son of David, an Israelite, he did not begin that conquest by throwing off the Romans to establish Israel of old. He sought no earthly throne. He sought no political influence, no militaristic power. The first thing that this king who has come, the first thing that he does is build his father a temple. And it will cost him his life. Because in Jerusalem, the temple had already been rebuilt. But the religious leaders who were running the place were absolutely wicked. Instead of a place of worship, they had turned it into a means of gaining their own fame and wealth. They enslaved the people. All the worshipers who came to the temple, they enslaved them with their traditions and their laws. The religious leaders, they served God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. They had a zeal for God, but no knowledge of him. The temple was altogether corrupt, and God would soon reject the temple and reject its worshipers. And early on in his public ministry, Jesus sat down and he spoke with this humble Samaritan woman who was asking him, where do we worship? Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. What a radical statement. We hardly hear it today. Jesus was declaring that the temple in Jerusalem would no longer be the center of worship. Indeed, Jesus prophesied that that temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed, torn down, even its foundations dug up. And he was right. The Romans came in 70 AD and they burned it to the ground. They dug up its foundations. It says, uh, it's even written that They plowed over where the old foundations were laid and turned it into a field. God utterly rejected that temple and the worship that was happening there. 
But that king, Jesus, he was building a temple. He was building a diff- totally different kind of temple whose walls were made of spirit and whose pillars were built on the foundations of truth. Jesus said to those religious leaders of the temple, he said, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. He's speaking about himself. The king. The king is the temple. The religious leaders, these Pharisees, they hated, hated the way that Jesus spoke about their temple, their beloved religious center. This obscure man from Nazareth comes here with his hillbilly accent and he tells us, the leaders of worship, how to worship. He says that he's the son of the Father, that God Almighty Yahweh is his Father, He calls him Abba, Daddy. How can he do this? What gives him the right? What gives him the authority to make such claims? If this is who you are, Jesus, give us a sign. Show us. And so Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. How profound are these words. Jesus is saying that his body is the temple. What cosmic reality is that? Jesus' body is the temple. All worship, all right worship to God, everything done in spirit and in truth, the only kind of worship that God will receive is worship done through the body of Jesus. Ironically, it's this very statement that gets Jesus killed. The religious leaders in their ridiculous kangaroo court condemn him for these words, saying that the temple would be torn down and three days raised again. Jesus' words about the temple being destroyed was the basis for the destruction of the true temple, his body. I know this is going to be a confusing Uh, statement, but Jesus' words about the temple being destroyed was the basis for the destruction of the true temple, which is his body. And God destroys the temple in Jerusalem primarily because the Israelites destroyed the temple that was Jesus' body. But that was the plan. That that human body would be pierced and broken and its blood spent. Because on that cross where the temple of Jesus was destroyed, where the serpent struck the heel of the king, the king crushes the head of the serpent forever. Rising from the grave, 
that pathetic snake is defeated. Its head, just a bloody pulp. Worship of God was now and permanently relocated to the temple of Jesus Christ's body. His death and resurrection, through that, he became the center of all human worship. It was the temple that people came to make sacrifices and to atone for themselves, to atone for their sins. Now we come to Jesus in faith and he forgives every sin. The temple is where people went to be cleansed, but now we come to Jesus and he gives us his righteousness and he purifies us. The temple is where people came to the priest to learn the scriptures and to learn how to worship, to worship rightly. Jesus reveals the truth of scripture and leads us in true spiritual worship by giving us his own spirit. Worship in spirit and in truth. No temple walls needed. Jesus Christ is the King and His body the temple where we worship in spirit and in truth. As we read in, in John 2, it was at the resurrection that this, the disciples finally understood what Jesus was talking about. He said all these things. He'd been saying these things for years. They didn't get it. But only when He rose from the dead did they see it. Did they finally understand what He was talking about? It says they believed the Scripture. Do you know what that means? Not just a single prophecy. They believed everything that the Old Testament was saying. That it was all pointing to Jesus Christ. They finally understood the Scripture for what the Scripture was intended for. It was to show Jesus. It was His shadow. It is His shadow. And they knew it now. Without a doubt. Without a question. It pointed to the King. They understood scriptures like this to be about this man from Nazareth. Zechariah 6, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, you know that term, the branch, for he shall branch out from this place, and he shall build a temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. What a prophecy. The king will set up his throne in the temple. And the nations, the nations will come and help to build the temple. And that's Jesus, the branch the shoot of Jesse, the coming king. They finally, the disciples finally realized that it was him. It was him. And now any person can walk through the door that is Jesus and find no curtain hiding the Father in the temple. God is seen exactly in the face of Jesus Christ, in the face of the King. This is what the disciples come to understand. This is what they've come to believe. This is what they died for, that this King who shows them the Father, and it's what all the Scripture had been pointing to already. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 3 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. 
But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He, Jesus Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by, his, by the word of his power. Every prophetic word, every story, every figure, every law, all scripture was shadows cast by the coming king. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The face of God the Father seen in the, coming, in the king who has come. Colossians 1, 15 and then 19 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let us praise God that he does not dwell in temples made by human hands. There's no law that demands that you or I make some pilgrimage in our life to a distant land where we can go worship in some temple. Our Muslim brothers and sisters are required to do that at least once in their life. Required. We have no such requirements. There is only our king. And he has made his temple very near to us. By faith, Through the power of the Holy Spirit, God Almighty has come to dwell in human hearts. Christ dwells in us. And this is an unbelievable shift in reality. There's hardly anything greater that we can comprehend than that Christ has come to live in us. The king who rules the universe has set his throne in our hearts. And maybe we're beginning to see a parallel now. The king has set his throne in our hearts. Galatians 2.20, you know this. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. Romans 8.10-11 If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. He dwells in you. 2 Corinthians 13.5 Do you not realize this about yourself? That Jesus Christ is in you. What a wonder! The living temple is in you. Why is that important? Because he's continuing to build his temple. He isn't finished. The temple isn't complete. 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 5. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, or cornerstone as we sang, In the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. 
The king is building each one of us living stone by living stone together into the house of God, the temple. The church is what the king has come to build. His body, his temple. You are the body of Christ, the temple of the king, the temple of the living God in which the king has set his throne. This is what the scriptures anticipated. The prophets could only see the shadows of it. But we see it clearly now in the face of Jesus Christ, the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his nature. From Eden to Abraham, David to Zechariah, it was always, always Jesus The temple now stands everlasting in the heart of every single believer and to make his church an everlasting temple, that means he has to give us everlasting life. His temple will never fail. So what else can we look to for worship? There's nothing There is no one. He is our forgiveness of sins. He is the freedom from condemnation. He has turned aside the wrath of God. He is our righteousness. He has torn the curtain and he has shown us the Father. And so, if the king continues to gather these living stones for his temple, that means there are many more still to be gathered. Remember that through this offspring, through this king, all the families of the earth will be blessed. All the families of the earth will be blessed. And so here's the thing about Jesus' living temple. The nations don't pilgrimage to it. A temple is the nations, goes out to the nations, For ministry and for proclamation, the temple goes. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, But now you are God's own people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Christ is building us into a temple, not so that we can sit within our walls and sing our own songs. He's building us into a temple so that we may proclaim his excellencies. The excellencies of the God who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light, who has given us mercy, us who did not have mercy. We proclaim the king's decree. The king decreed it. We proclaim it. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. You are the living temple of God. And that is your commission. That is my commission. And as we fulfill the great commission to go into all the world making disciples 
from all nations as we fulfill the great commission. May the nations stream into the church, the body of Christ, the temple. Worship in spirit and in truth. They will stream in and they will encounter the king that has come. They will encounter the king that is yet to come. The king that we await for. The king that will make all things final. That will finally unite heaven and earth. That will bring us into our resurrected bodies. That will show us more fully than anything we've ever experienced what true ultimate worship is like. The king is coming again. The king is coming again. Let's pray. Whom have I in heaven but you? And the earth has nothing I desire apart from you. When my, though my heart and my flesh may fail, you are my portion, my strength forever. There's nothing here for us, Father. There's your Son, the Spirit that you've given to us. each other, that we can worship together as a holy temple, your Son. You have established your throne in our hearts, and it's unbelievable. And hardly can we fathom it in our day-to-day lives, but it's true. Help us to realize that Christ is in us. The King is here, right here, closer than my breath. Help us to know it, to live it, and to proclaim it. That the nations may come, that all the families of the earth might be blessed by that good news. Thank you, Father, for calling us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. Thank you for rewarding us not with wrath, but with mercy. Thank you for building us into your house. Thank you for your Son who has come and redeemed us. In his name we trust, we rely, and we hope, and we pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.